Yes, thank you, uh, Steve. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here uh, with you this morning. As you can tell already, I'm not from around here. <laughs> I'm not from North Carolina. I'm not even from South Carolina. I'm not from America at all. I'm from England. Um, I'm over here with my, my wife, Kate, who's uh, stuck in the back. And we have one daughter, uh, Lydia, who's downstairs, out of the way. And uh, we've got one on the way during the summer. Um, we're excited to welcome um, him into our family. Um, I'm over here studying at RCS uh, in Charlotte, Reformed Theological Seminary, studying uh, to get my MDiv, uh, to go into uh, pastoral ministry in England in a, in a church planting uh, context. And it's been one of my pleasures to, while I'm in the States, to, to, to come and visit various churches and preach. Uh, it's a great joy to do so. And this morning we'll be in Isaiah chapter 40. So it's not a Bible, so you turn to Isaiah. You say Isaiah, right? Isaiah? So I'm going to say Isaiah, that's the right way to say it. Isaiah chapter 40, so if you've got a Bible in front of you, you'll find it helpful to have it open. Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to preach this morning from uh, verses 6 through to verses 11. 6 to 11 of Isaiah 40. But let me just give a few words of context. And before I read the passage, um, Isaiah 40, uh, through really the end of Isaiah, through to chapter 66, uh, is written uh, by the prophet Isaiah uh, to God's people uh, when they will be in exile in, in several hundred years' time in the future. The message from God uh, to them. Uh, of course, you know about Israel's exile, how the Babylon army came and uprooted them uh, from the promised land and carted them away to a foreign land, away from Jerusalem, away from the temple, and away from all of God's promises to them. So you can imagine how they might be feeling uh, forgotten, forsaken, despairing, perhaps ready to leave Yahweh for a better God or for something better than him. That's the context that this passage comes in. And uh, let me just say a quick word as well about verses 1 to 5. I won't read them, but it is helpful to cast your eye over them. At uh, the beginning of chapter 40 begins, Comfort, comfort, my people. To, to despairing people in exile, God has a method of comfort. Uh, firstly, that their sins are forgiven, that the reason for their exile is over, uh, that God forgives them and wants them back. That's so verses 1 and 2. And then secondly, in verses 3 to 5, that God himself is coming. God himself is coming to rescue them from exile. Verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, of course, we know, if we uh, know the Gospels at all, that this passage is, is quoted in all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and uh, John, to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, to speak of his first coming there, when he, when he came down incarnate, God made flesh, but also, actually, in this passage, to speak of his second coming. And those comings of Christ are contained within it. So that's the context for our verses. I'm going to read them. And then I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive in. 
a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, save the cities of Judah. Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and God, we come out of for you this morning because we need to be fed from your word. We are those who are weak. We are those who struggle day by day to live at poor Christ, to make the right choices for his name each hour of each day. We are those who battle with our sin and need your word to comfort us, to encourage us, and to exhort us to live for him. And so we pray, lift him before our eyes this morning. And lift Christ before us and glorify him among us. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, are any of these are true for you, or perhaps if you're very young, for the person sitting next, to you. You struggle with um, health problems, either physically in your, in your body or, or mentally, in your mind. Or recently someone close to you has gotten ill or perhaps even died. You, you trusted someone and they failed you. You've laboured long over something. And then later night it was lost. Or how about this one? The years that you have lived are likely more than the years you've got left to, to live. Imagine for many of us this morning, several of those things are true. And the question is this, where do I put my confidence when everything around me, including myself, seems so weak. Where do I put my confidence when everything around me, including myself, seems so weak? And that is the question that our passage speaks into this morning. In verse 6, we're introduced to two individuals, and they're having a, a conversation, but we don't know who they are. A voice, a mysterious voice, says, cry, and another Responds, what shall I cry? Uh, the responding voice might be Isaiah and the ESV text and says, and I said, what shall I cry? If you follow the footnotes, most of the versions, it could be someone says, 
what shall I cry? We don't know who it is in that sense. It could be Isaiah, it could be a, a later prophet, it could be Paul the Apostle, it could be your pastor or me this morning. And it tells us this, that it tells us two things about First, that the message that is to be cried matters not the messenger. The message matters not the messenger. It doesn't matter who's speaking it. But more than that, and secondly, the manner matters. That's the importance of the first voice there. It says, cry, I've got a message for you to speak, and you need to cry it. You think of a town crier back in the days before we had the internet and the news. It would go to a town, a message that was urgent and important that everyone needed to know was cry aloud that everyone heard. It's a message that needs to be cried because deep down that we want to ignore it. It's an uncomfortable message. We prefer to live, and sometimes we do live, uh, like it's not true. And the first part of the message in verses 6 and 7, and our first point this morning, is that everything human fails. Everything human fails. That is a truth that needs to get deep down inside of us. What shall I cry? Well, all flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades. All flesh, that is everything a human, to ourselves, our neighbours, people sitting next to us, through to our communities that we live in, up to um, our states, to our country, as the world that we live in, all flesh is grass. And you know what it's like with grass. Grass is green. It's full of life. We use it in our gardens so it's pleasant to look at. But the sun comes in the summer and, and burns it up. Or the winter comes and freezes it. Or the drought comes and dries it. Grass never lasts. All flesh is grass. So all flesh, verse 7, withers. Everything human fails. Let me go through it for you. Everything that we've invested in our, our families, our companies, our houses, the relationships that we've loved, the people we've loved, they come and go, our bodies and our health decay. We live long enough, we live in increasing pain, our minds weaken, and eventually our lives themselves give up. All flesh is grass, and all grass withers. All flesh is grass, verse 6, and all its beauty is like the flower of a field. Now sometimes, that might be a compliment. If you went home and said to your wife, Darling, you are beautiful like a flower. She'd probably take that as a compliment. Uh, and she then said to you, What do you mean by that? And you said, Well, today, you're beautiful, but tomorrow you're going to say you might not be too pleased. <laughs> we know that about flowers, don't we? We know they're beautiful, but they don't last. They're beautiful, we love to cut them from our gardens and place them in our homes because they bring life 
and vitality and warmth and colour. But we also know that the, the day we cut the flower and bring it into our home, there is a day coming. And then we'll take that flower out again and throw it in the trash. Humanity has no endurance. It has no permanency. And that is a truth, frankly, we want to bury deep down inside of us that in a hundred years' time, no one will know our names. That all we've laboured for and built will crumble to dust and be lost in the deserts of time. And that ultimately our own deaths are inevitable. And every day I live, as good as that day is, brings me closer to the day of my death. 35th Shelley wrote a poem called Ozymandias. Ozymandias was the king of kings, the most glorious king who ever lived. He's a fictional character. And in this poem, he has a traveller going into a desert and finding two stone legs. It used to be part of a statue. He goes up to his legs and he looks at them and he looks down and he finds a, a placard. And the placard says, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look at my glory and despair. And the poem goes on, Nothing now remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretched far away. The greatest fictional character has no legacy left. All flesh fails. And God is uncovering that before us, but I think it gets worse in verse 7 before we're done. It gets worse in verse 7. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And that when is the, the causal when. You say because the breath of the Lord blows on it. Humanity flourishes and fades because God breathes. It is the Lord's doing. And that is a terrible truth. And a hard truth. And one which we don't often confront. I think we know it theologically. If you know your Bible, if you know Genesis and Genesis chapter 3, that when Adam and Eve sinned, our first parents, God cursed them and he cursed the world that we live in. We live as human beings in a world that's under the active judgment of God, heading for a day of judgment. That's like the hot breath of God that breathes life into Adam, breathe in the world again to wither that life up. It explains why I am a man who fails and will ultimately fade. Because I am in Adam. I am a sinner. I am part of his rebellious race that suffers under God's wrathful breath. And we bury it because it is a terrible truth. That the Lord lays us each in the dust for our sin. 
He said, Return, O children of man, dust you are, and to dust you will return. And it's crucial that we are convicted of this, and that we are convicted of humanity's frailness. It's crucial so at first we don't make the mistake of placing our hope and our trust in human things, of making a foolish decision. That was the context for Israel in exile. They were in Babylon, in the superpower and the greatest nation on earth, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of kings. They attempted to trust him and turn to him and to his God. That's our temptation in the world we live in. To, pre- to prevent us from making that foolish decision, but also to turn our eyes to something else. If I know that my flesh and the flesh around me, by its very nature, will fail, then I must turn to something that is by its very nature different to me. I must turn from things that are human to things that are of God. And that brings us to our second point in verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Secondly, everything human says, but God's word cannot fail. The message of our weakness that I've brought to you this morning from God's word is not meant to make us despair and hopelessness. Was meant to make us run the word of God because the word of God alone endures. It cannot fail. And it cannot fail because of who God is. You ever thought about that? Because God is eternal. Because God is truth himself. Because God is eternal. Sorry, that's eternal. Because it's unchanging. It cannot fail. Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. For a son of man that he should change his mind. Do you hear that? He's not human. He's not of us. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God's word cannot fail because he cannot lie. Notice the parallels in verse 7 and 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. And the breath of the Lord blows for the judgment. But verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. And the same breath flows and comes and speaks a new word of hope and life. So that in the midst of a world that crumbles and is under the judgment of God, he has set up a new place for people to run to that doesn't crumble and doesn't fade. You can think of it like this. Think of a mountain of rock, a solid, great mountain of rock And through time, things come and go. A forest grows and is chopped down and vanishes. A civilization is built and replaces it, but crumbles to dust. But the rock remains forever. It does not change. It stays the same. And so Proverbs 18 verse verse 10 says, the name of the Lord is a strong power and the righteous run into it and are saved. And and we can think that a little bit legitimately, and say the word of the Lord is a strong tower, a mountain of rock, and the righteous run to it, and are set. Now I know in this church, 
that you will be frequently urged to trust God's word. He did it this morning for the children. But do you see why here, in this particular passage, because it's the only thing that endures. Everything else fades and fails. And many of you know that already. And these are verses that you could take and think rightly and, and, and do your good to stick them up in your fridge, put on a magnet, that kind of thing. And lots of people do that, they put them on calendars and other things. Uh, but they are verses that come in a particular context to urge us to trust in something particular. And those verses are verses 1 to 5 and verses 9 to 11, right in the middle of them. And as I said uh, before, we read the passage, verses 1 to 5 primarily is about the Lord's coming, the promise the Lord will come and rescue his people, and that speaks of Christ's first coming, uh, but also speaks of his second coming, they're bound together. Because he's come once, he will come again. And so as Christians, we, we read verses 1 to 5, and we rejoice to see that there's partially fulfilled that Christ has come. But we long to see it completed for Christ to return. And that leads us into verses 9 to 11. Everything human fails, but God's word cannot fail. So thirdly this morning, so rest your confidence in his coming. He has promised it, and he will come. There's a new speaker in verse 9, a new voice. It's Zion or uh, Jerusalem uh, speaking to the cities of Judah. And the way Jerusalem is speaking, i.e. Jerusalem, the centre of God's people, speaking to the rest of God's people, the way Jerusalem is speaking matches the confidence it has, she has in God's word. His word does not fail. So the design goes up on a, on a high mountain so you can be heard. She, she lifts up her voice loudly above the crowd so everyone hears her. She makes the message known because she knows that it's utterly trustworthy and worthy of confidence. She knows that what she has to say to the church is good news. And what does she say? She says, end of verse 9, Behold your God. Look with the eyes of faith and see God. And what is God doing? He is coming, verse 10. God's coming and Christ's coming. In Scripture, are, are one and the same thing. And there are two things in verse 10 that we are to behold about his coming. And the first is that he comes of might and with an arm to rule. He comes as a God in strength, a conquering king, with power to establish his kingdom and his rule. God will come and through Christ, the kingdom of God will be fully established. You know how Paul says it in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. 
God comes in power and might to make that a reality. And he comes as well, uh, not just to do that, but to gather his reward and his recompense. End of verse 10, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Reward and recompense are really, I think, just, just two words, the same thing. Uh, they're, they're wages. They're what is owed to someone. So if a man works all day in a vineyard, picking fruit, he deserves his reward for it, his recompense, the labour. And God comes, and Christ comes, uh, to gather and claim what is his. Christ, as you know, has conquered as part of what was happening on, on the cross. He conquered the powers of evil. He conquered sin. He conquered death. And now he comes to collect what is his. And that includes everything that will be in the new heavens and the new earth. But principally and primarily it is us. We are his reward. We are his Recompense. Yeah, it says it in Hebrews 12 that for the joy set before him he ran the race to the cross. We are Christ's joy. And that is why it transitions at the end of our passage through to verse 11 and speaks of the Lord our God and Christ the King being a shepherd for his flock. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. To carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The arm that rules and establishes reign comes as the arm that gently gathers. That's the main image here, isn't it? It's a shepherd rounding up, gathering, carrying, leading. Think of a, a shepherd that, well, I probably know this far better than I do, but think of a shepherd that goes gathering his, his livestock, his sheep. They're scattered across a mountainside and night is coming. It's time for them to come home. And so he goes out and sends out his sheep dogs and he, and he gathers them in, safe into his house. And the manner he does it is with care, with tenderness, with gentleness. It says verse 11 that he'll carry them in his bosom. That means, today's language would say, close to his heart. Think of a, a, a young mother who goes to maybe a supermarket with her infant son. And she goes around shopping, she loses her son. The son wanders off to this big superstore and gets lost and she's distressed and she's worried. When they are reunited, what will she do? She'll take him and she'll gather him to her heart. She loves him. And God loves us. We are close to his heart. And he's careful with us. You see that? He's careful with us. We are those in the passage who are weak, who are young, who are heavy laden. You know, being a faithful Christian in this world is hard. I'm sure you know that. Living daily for Christ and for his cause leaves wounds on us. It makes us weary to stand out from the world, to stand against the world in many things. To, 
daily lift up our cross and bear on our shoulders the burden of being a Christian, doing daily battle with our sin and denying our flesh. Do you feel that? That the weariness of being a Christian? The weight, the, the scars, the wounds? Do you know those wounds? So when Christ comes, he'll deal lovingly and tenderly with every wound and every care, treating every bruise and scar with love. Of course, we know to some extent that God is like that to us already. I'm sure you know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he is my shepherd, and daily he leads me. And yet, sometimes it can be difficult to see that. Sometimes darkness does seem to hide his face and he goes through the valley of darkness. And it's right that we long for something more. And friends, God has promised something more. So that there's a sense in which when Christ comes, all our doubts about his love and his care and his concern for us will be put to rest. We will see him as he is, and he will shepherd us. And all this sleeping, failing, crumbling, broken, cursed world will pass away. He has promised it. It is in his word. His word endures forever. He will surely do it. So rest your confidence all the days of your life in his coming for you. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are your sheep and we are the people of your pasture and daily we live for you and we seek your will and your kingdom and your glory and yet we acknowledge that we are tempted by this world we are tempted to turn aside to worldly affairs to be more concerned with our own little kingdoms than your kingdom to fear the world and to fear standing out to not once put our sin to death and we know Father that often the world leaves scars and bruises and has hurt us I very pray this your people here that all their faith and all their trust as they labour on to serve Christ would be in your word and would be in the promises of your word and they'll be looking to the sure and certain hope of Christ and his return. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. In his name we pray. Amen. Oh,